Hello, boys and girls. This is Dr. John, and welcome once again to the Children's Story Hour. We are so glad to have you here. And as usual, Auntie Sue is here with us. Hello, Auntie Sue. Hello, Dr. John. I'm so happy to be here, and I'm looking forward to another episode of the Children's Story Hour. Auntie Sue, can you tell us who our storyteller is today? Yes, it is Natalie McLean, known as Auntie Nat. And of course, she's one of many storytellers that we'll hear today. And I think many of you know Auntie Nat. If you watch A Day with the King every week, one of the first people you will see will be Auntie Nat. And she is a good storyteller. And she has some stories for us that are going to be really exciting. But you know, she loves to pray. Perhaps, Auntie Sue, could you just say a little prayer for us? Yes. Dear Lord, thank you for the children who are listening today. Thank you for the stories and the storytellers. And I pray that we will take them to our hearts. We ask you to bless us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Auntie Sue. Now, boys and girls, keep your letters coming. Keep your drawings coming. We really look forward to seeing them. Do you know where to send them? Auntie Sue, you might have to help us here. You can write to us at Children's Story Hour, 3ABN, Australia Radio, PO Box 752, Morissette, 2264, New South Wales, Australia, or email at radio at 3abnaustralia.org.au. You can also check out the radio page on the 3ABN Australia website. The web address is www.3abnaustralia.org.au. Thank you, Auntie Sue and boys and girls. We really look forward to hearing from you. And now, sit down as we listen to some more stories from the Children's Story Hour. Hi girls and boys, this is Uncle Alan with another story just for you. Today it's entitled Looking for Grandad. What shall we do this afternoon, asked Dave as he leaned on his bicycle. I wish there was somewhere to go. I get bored just riding around the town. Why don't we go and see my grandad, said Paul. Do you have a grandad, asked Dave. Of course I have, said Paul. He's a bit old, but he's okay. He has a farm not far from here. How far? asked Dave. Oh, I'm not sure, replied Paul. Not very far, just a few miles. Are you sure we could get there and back by five o'clock, said Dave? Mum says I must be back for tea on the dot of five. My mum wants me back early too, said Paul. Can we make it back by five, there and back? Oh, easily, said Paul. If we start right away, we could be back by four. Well, let's go, said Dave. What are we waiting for? So off they went, pedalling as fast as they dared, through the traffic and so out of the town. On and on they went, mile after mile. Are you sure we're on the right road, asked Dave. Of course, said Paul, but it seems to be a bit further than I thought. I should think it is, said Dave, as they panted up a long hill. 
How much further do we have to go? It can't be far now, said Paul. I seem to remember that clump of trees over there. They pedalled on. Half an hour later, there was still no sign of Grandad's farm. Dave jumped off his bike. Now look here, Paul, he said. I think you've been kidding me. We've been riding for more than an hour and a half, and there's still no sign of your granddad's place. I don't believe you have a granddad. I do have a granddad, replied Paul hotly. I know he lives somewhere in this direction, but I must have forgotten where. Are you sure he lives on this road? asked Dave. Oh, yes, I think so, said Paul. Think so? snorted Dave. How about that clump of trees you said you recognised miles back? I suppose it was the wrong clump. I'm going to go back, said Dave. No, don't, said Paul. It can't be far now. It can't really. And I know he'll give us a wonderful tea. Tea, said Dave. I could do with that. But I'm supposed to be home for tea. What do you suppose my mum will say if I'm not there on time? Hmm, said Paul. I suppose I should go back, too. But it would be too bad to miss seeing Grandad now we've come so far. Let's go round the next corner, shall we? Oh, all right, said Dave. Just one more corner. So they got on their bikes and rode on again. They went round the next corner, and the next, and the next. Still there was no sign of Grandad's farm. Dark thunderclouds rolled up, blotting out the sun. Then it rained, drenching the boys to the skin and turning the dusty road into a sea of mud. First one skidded and fell off, then the other. I wish I'd never heard of your granddad, said Dave, as he picked himself out of the mud. But we're nearly there now, said Paul. Nearly there, cried Dave, as the rain dripped off his nose end. Nearly there, we've been nearly there all afternoon. But we are, I'm sure, said Paul. In fact, I think that's his farm we can see through the trees. It had better be, said Dave. I'm wet through. They went down the farm road, dodging the puddles as best they could. Dripping wet and covered with mud, they finally knocked at the door. It was opened by an old gentleman. Grandad, cried Paul, we've come to see you. Glad to see you, boys, said Grandad. But what brings you here so late? Why, what's the time? asked Dave. We were supposed to be back at five. Five, laughed Grandad. It's nearly 7.30. 7.30, cried the boys together. How far have we come? About 30 miles. And you have 30 to go back. I think I'd better phone your homes. While Grandad phoned, Dave glared at Paul. You and you're just a few miles, he said. Now look at the trouble I'm in. I think we're both in trouble, said Paul. I should have kept my promise and not listened to you, said Dave. I should have kept my promise too, said Paul. Our mums will be annoyed. He was quite right, except that annoyed was not a strong enough word. Some time later, a car stopped outside the farmhouse. Two damp, dirty little boys were bundled into it and hurried home to dry clothes. Paul's mother told me that the bicycles had to be left behind because there wasn't room for them in the car. 
and that's where they remained for the rest of the summer holiday. Every time the boys thought of them, they were reminded that keeping a promise to mum is a very important thing. and girls, it's Auntie Cecily back again. I hope you're comfortable and settled so that we can learn more from the book Libby and His Bush Friends. This time we're going to read from Chapter 7 called Growing Up. As Libby grew older, he explored the bush more. He found some different places to sleep. He preferred quiet private spots where he couldn't be disturbed or shown off to visitors during the day. Sometimes he slept in the hollow of a tree. Other times he found a high spot under the roof of the horse stables or slept in a box on top of a tall cupboard in the garage. There was a gap between the top of the garage wall and the roof, just big enough for possums to squeeze through. A few possums found their way into the garage over the years. It was a quiet, cosy place to doze during the day out of the sun, rain or wind. One of the things we looked forward to as we drove home from work was to be greeted by our bush friends. Just outside the garage door was an elevated water tank from which we drew our water for the house and gardens. The tank stand was a tall steel structure and served as a jungle gym for Libby and his possum friends. Libby often waited on the tank stand for us. As we walked past, Barry tilted his shoulder to let Libby climb on. This became a long-term family ritual. Other times we could see Libby up a gum tree near the front gate. If it was dark when we arrived home, the headlights of our car would highlight his big sparkling eyes. On several occasions, Barry stopped, opened the car door and called to Libby. Libby clambered down the gum tree and climbed inside the car. He then climbed onto Barry's knee, then up to his shoulder. Libby was content to stay on Barry's shoulder until he was inside the house, unless we had bags of groceries on the back seat. Then it was a different story. Libby would soon be off Barry's shoulder and down onto the back seat, rummaging through the bags. He loved the smell of fresh bread. If we had bread, he tried to get at it by biting through the plastic bag. Because possums can't digest bread properly, we had to entice him away from the bread with a piece of banana or something else that was available. There were times when Libby wanted to bite into one bag after another. We had to develop a better way of managing him in the car. So when we saw his sparkling eyes in the trees, I quickly pulled some fruit out of one of the grocery bags in readiness. As soon as Libby got as far as Barry's shoulder, I distracted him by giving him a piece of fruit to eat. In this way, we were able to avoid having our shopping bags shredded. Possums have very sharp teeth and claws. 
While Libby was very gentle with us, we found that we had to be very careful with other possums we cared for because they instinctively grab for food. It was very easy to be bitten or scratched in the process. Sometimes Libby was there to greet us at the back door. As we arrived at the laundry, Libby scampered down the pergola post and met us at the door. He always seemed to be full of enthusiasm in greeting us in the evening. It was lovely to have such a cheery home coming after a long, hard day at the office. Libby never waited for Barry to unlock the back door. Before the door was open, Libby was on his way up Barry's leg. Barry had to quickly stretch his leg out at a more gentle angle for Libby to climb up so he wouldn't grasp too tightly with his sharp claws. Barry then quickly bent over so that Libby could run up his back without putting claw holes in his shirt. Once on Barry's shoulder, Libby rode triumphantly inside like king of the castle. Barry only had to tilt his shoulder toward the kitchen divide shelf and Libby would step off onto the shelf and watch my every move as I unpacked the groceries. Libby was quite a novelty for anyone who visited our place, especially in the evenings when he was active. When we had a large group of visitors, he didn't mind being fussed over a little. He always had the option to hang out in a gum tree until everybody left. However, Libby worked out quickly that visitors and food seemed to go together. Libby never wanted to miss out on the food, so he usually hung around for a while, much to the delight of children and adult guests alike. I remember one occasion when we invited friends to dinner. Bob and Bev had three lively boys and a daughter, Elizabeth. Knowing that we did not have a TV, Bev suggested we might need to bring our portable TV to help occupy the children. They'll be restless after dinner. We can talk with fewer interruptions if I bring something to occupy them. I don't think that will be necessary, I reassured her. Things can be very interesting around here at night with visits from possums and wallabies. And that's exactly the way it turned out. By the time we finished dinner, the children were keen to be excused from the table. It was dark outside by then. The possums were waking up and descending from the hollows in the trees. We knew when they were around, especially if their first port of call was our galvanised iron roof. They dropped down from the tree branches overhanging the roof. We could hear the quick pitter-patter of possum paws across the roof as they made their way to the pergola covering the back veranda. Seconds later, they could be seen climbing down the pergola posts and wandering along our back veranda looking for food. Our young visitors were excited about being able to get so close to them. They had that same sense of excitement bubbling up in them that King David had when he was young. He says in Psalms chapter 71 verse 17, O God, thou hast taught me from my youth, and hitherto have I declared thy wondrous works. 
At first, the children kept coming back and forth to tell us how the possums took food out of their hands and how they could gently touch their soft, furry coats. They were certainly enthralled with God's wonderful animal creation. Then they settled down to entice the possums with more food and watch them get up to their playful antics. Needless to say, the possums did an admirable job of amusing the children for the remainder of the evening, while the adults relaxed and chatted in the lounge room. It's story time, and this is Uncle Gordon to bring you another story from the South Pacific Islands. In the Cook Islands, where I spent five years, um, I was visiting with my wife to the shops to purchase some goods on one Friday afternoon. When I returned home to our village in Titicavica, there was a lady sitting at the steps of our home, a lady whom I'd never met before, never seen, and... uh, when I inquired as to what she wanted, she said oh, she had a problem and wanted to talk with me. So after taking our goods inside, my wife attended to them and I went and talked with her in my office. Her name was Petter. She said, I have a problem. I said, what's your problem? She said, I have land problems. I've got some land here, but there's big arguments between all our various relatives. Well, that was not new to me because uh, in the islands, no matter where you are, people have outgrown the area that they have and there's quite dis- dis- disputes about the whose land it is and who should be there and who shouldn't be there. So I said, well, Petra, I don't know much about the information of uh, government on tenure of islands and land. Uh, perhaps I should come with you to the office of the lands department and speak with you and the lands minister of your problem. But I said, in the meantime, uh, let's pray about it. Why don't we ask the Lord to help us with this issue? I said, he's interested. And so we knelt in prayer, and I prayed earnestly for her. And the moment I said amen at the end of the prayer, she said, oh, pastor, will you come to my home and have Bible studies? I said, Peter, what's this all about? Oh, she said, I just want you to know that this morning, about four o'clock this morning, I woke up and I want to tell you, I'm not a a servant of God. I've never been a Christian. I've had nothing to do with it. But she said, I woke up at about four o'clock this morning almost with a vision. She said, somebody was saying to me, go out and find somebody who will pray with you. And uh, she said, as soon as it was daylight, I got up and got my children underway. And then I went out and I went to the London Missionary Society Church and saw the Reverend there and he talked with me and gave me some counsel, but he didn't pray with me. So I went along to the Catholic Church, and the priest there also was very kind and thoughtful, and he he gave me some information, but he never prayed with me. The um, Mormons, they had a, an elder there from America, and he was very kind, and he talked with them, and uh, and he encouraged her to uh, just go and talk with the, the authorities, and maybe they could answer her problems. But he didn't pray she said, you're the first one that has prayed with me, so I have to come and ask you to come and have Bible studies with me. Well, I thought that was very wonderful. So I said, well, Peter, I'm booked up until Tuesday night. Can I come around to your place on Tuesday night? She said, yes, I'll be having there and I'll have my family with me. 
So Tuesday night I arrived at her home. To my surprise, she had 13 children. The youngest was five, the eldest was 26. And uh, she had a husband there at the the, uh, Bible study too, but I didn't count him because he was an alcoholic and heavy smoker and and, uh, didn't seem to me awake enough to understand anything that I said in the Bible, from the Bible. Well, I had a picture roll there, and the children were very interested in this, and I had a Bible or two that I'd handed out, and those who could read had the Bibles, and I'd show them where to pick up the text, and they thoroughly enjoyed it, and we had a wonderful Bible study. And as soon as it was finished, Peter said, can we come to your church on Sabbath? Well, I thought this is the best uh, Bible study I've ever had. One Bible study and they all want to come to church. So I said, well, Peter, I'm preaching at Avarua, which is just nearby here on Sabbath. Uh, I'll be happy to pick you up and you ch- little children, but I can't fit all in my car. The rest I'll show where they can walk to. <clears> or <throat> oh, they know where it is. And so uh, on Sabbath, I arrived there early enough to pick her up and whatever children I could and uh, take her to church expecting that the others would be there too. I didn't expect a husband to be there because uh, the weekends were a great time for bush beery. And when I got there, there was not a sound to be heard anywhere. And, you know, you can't hide 20, uh, 20, 15, 13 children, and uh, there was not a sound anywhere. But I thought, well, maybe they've all walked to church. As I got to the, to the house, I knocked on the door. There was no one answering. It was all silent. And I knocked again, and the door slowly swung open slightly. It hadn't been locked. It was just ajar, and my knocking had opened the door. And to my surprise, here was Petter sitting on the middle of the floor, her hair all matted and blood streaming from her head and uh, from her cheeks and from her throat. Her throat would be, was badly mauled and bruised. And I thought, oh, man, she's been in a fight with her husband because she wanted to come to church. But as I moved in to see if I could help her, a voice that was beside her said, I'm not in her, I'm beside her. I'm not a bad spirit, I'm a good spirit. Well, my hair stood on end because having been involved in spiritualism in my own home with my mother, having been trained as a spirit medium, I knew what it was and I was very afraid. Here I was face to face myself with a demon and I only knew one thing and that was to pray I thought that was my only safety so I was kneeling down to pray and somebody touched me from behind and I thought the the devil himself had got there and I got such a fright I swung around and it was total a man from up the road who was a taxi driver had his own car and he used it as a taxi and he was a member of our church and he saw my car at the front of Petter's place and he said, that can't be right. The pastor knows they're not Adventists. They're, they're, they belong to the devil, that family. And he'd come down to see if he could help me. And he was there standing behind me. And I said, come on, Tara, we've got to pray. And so we knelt there and we prayed. And as I began to pray, that demon began to scream and to yell and to call out in all sorts of thundering town, tones. And I was very afraid. But the Lord gave me strength, and as I prayed, I prayed earnestly, and I could feel the Holy Spirit helping me. And as I came to the close of my prayer, I said, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command this evil spirit to be gone, to be driven from this place. And as if the house was just about to break down, and it was whirling and screaming and yelling, and suddenly it was all gone. The whole thing had been passed over. Well, 
Peter was there, a very sick woman. But the devil had been cast out, and we praised the Lord. And I had the privilege of taking Peter later to church. I had the privilege of baptizing a number of her children. I was moved away from the Cook Islands to other places, but being a union president, I was able to visit there quite often. And I met up with Peter on a number of occasions along with his children. They were all attending church. And one day when I was there visiting, I went to a gathering, a combined meeting at Titicavica, and she was there to greet me. And she said, see that man over there? He's one of the elders of our church. And I said, yes, uh, who's he? And she said, I'll invite him over. She invited him over, and it was her husband. He too had accepted the truth as a result of Peter's uh, uh, devotion to her Lord and along with the children. And then in 89, I was there again, and uh, she had passed away. Her husband had gathered all his family together, and they put on a great feast that uh, was specially for me. And it was a privilege for me to be sitting there with their children. Some had got married, and uh, some had grown much bigger. And as we finished the meal, this father, the chief of the family, he said, excuse me, I want to say something. He said, Pastor Lee, we want to thank you. We owe everything to you for what you have done in bringing us to a knowledge of God. We were bound up in devil worship and uh, things related to evil of this world. I was a drunkard, no good, a heavy smoker. I was killing myself. But now the Lord has set me free and he's given me this beautiful family. And uh, we are paying homage to Petter, who heard the Lord calling her and who, through you, led us to a knowledge of truth. And we want to thank you. And I said, well, it was not me, it was the Holy Spirit. Yes, he said, that's true. But I want you to know that the Holy Spirit was using you. And I want to tell you, folks, that this is what the Lord is wanting to do. When Jesus sent out his disciples uh, to meet the people, he gave them an opportunity to go out and he said to seek out those and and to pray over them and to cast out demons. And now I find that this is what's happening. When Peter was preaching at Pentecost, the people were amazed that this fisherman was able to do great and mighty things. And he said, well, this, this will happen. The Holy Spirit will be with you right until the ends of the earth. That's what the Lord is willing to do with each one of us. Sophie Lee here to read you another portion of the book, Ellen, The Girl with Two Angels, written by Mabel R. Miller. Night came. Even though they had had a hard time going to sleep, no one had to wake up the twins the next morning. Finally, the day had arrived, October 22, 1844. They jumped out of bed before the sun even came up. They wanted to watch the sky and be the first to welcome Jesus. A hundred thousand Adventists waited for Jesus that morning. Some gathered in churches or in homes. Others waited in fields or on a hillside. As the Harmon family waited, they sang praises to God. They repeated his promises. They talked to him in prayer. Slowly, the sun crossed the sky. Jesus did not come. He'll be here by sunset, Ellen said. She kept waiting and hoping. Sunset came. Darkness and night covered the earth, but Jesus had still not returned. 
Tears ran down Alan's cheeks. Why, Papa? Why didn't Jesus come? Papa choked back his own tears as he encouraged the family. My dear children, we don't know why Jesus didn't come, but we know God's word is true. We'll trust him. Someday we'll understand what happened. Jesus did not come that day. Alan, Preacher Miller and the disappointed Adventists had figured out from the Bible the exact day and year of the prophecy. But they didn't understand that the Bible was pointing to the time when the great judgment in heaven would begin, not to the time when Jesus would come back to earth. Even as Ellen and other Adventists cried and tried to understand, the angels of heaven carried Jesus to the most holy room in the heavenly sanctuary. There Jesus met God, his Father, and the great judgment began. When Jesus' work is finished there, he will return just as Ellen and her family believed he would. Chapter 6. Good News from Heaven The days and months after the great disappointment were difficult for the Harmon family and the others who had planned to be in heaven. Like the Harmons, many had given all the money they had to help print papers telling everyone to be ready to meet Jesus. Father Harmon had to work terribly hard just to earn enough money to buy food for his family. And the people he hadn't believed made fun of them. Never mind, Papa kept saying. God will take care of us. He will, Alan chimed in. He will. Alan and Elizabeth's birthdays came soon after the great disappointment. On November 26, the twins turned 17 years old. Alan understood why she didn't get a birthday present. Her parents had given all their money to share Jesus' coming. They'd sold everything in the house that they could to get along without until Jesus came. They even sold their horse and carriage. She'd done the same thing when making her hats. No one had any money. Ellen felt so sad, not because she had no birthday gift, but because she'd been so certain she'd celebrate her 17th birthday in heaven with Jesus. One day, Ellen fought to keep back her tears. She turned her face up to him in heaven. Dear Jesus, I love you. Please tell me why you didn't come. I know you will come someday because you have promised. Please help me to be more cheerful. Help me to give courage to my family and friends who are sad. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Jesus heard Ellen even though she was sick and could speak only in a whisper. He had plans for her if she was only willing to work for him. About two weeks after the twins' birthday, one of Ellen's friends, Mrs. Haynes, invited her to come spend a few days with her. Though Ellen could hardly stand up, her mother encouraged her to go. It'll be good for you to have a change, Mother said. So the next morning, with a bag of clothes and her Bible on her lap, Ellen leaned forward eagerly as her brother pushed her across town in her wheelchair. Mrs. Haynes was only a little older than Ellen, and Ellen knew they would have a good time together. One morning, three of their girlfriends came to visit. They all loved God, so they read their Bibles together. Was it really Jesus who was leading us when we thought he was coming on October 22? Or was it something Preacher Miller made up? They kept asking. Let's ask God to help us find the answer as we study our Bibles, one of them suggested. They all knelt down so they could speak to God. Jesus was there. Ellen felt his gentle presence. Quietly, the young women prayed together. Ellen could only speak in a whisper when her turn came. Suddenly, she was silent. She forgot she was kneeling in prayer. She forgot her friends knelt beside her. She did not know anything that was happening in the room. 
God was giving her a wonderful dream. Ellen saw a bright shining angel beside her. She felt as if she were being lifted up, up, higher and higher. She turned and looked down, trying to see her friends and the other Adventists. She looked everywhere and couldn't see them. Look again, the angel said. Look a little higher. Ellen looked up higher, and there she saw a narrow path going up, up, all the way up to heaven. The Adventists were walking on this path towards God's holy city. A bright light at the beginning of the path below was shining up. It gave light for everyone's feet and kept them from stumbling and falling off the narrow path. Those who kept their eyes on Jesus did not fall, for he was leading them. Some of the people grumbled. I'm tired of this long, hard climb, they complained. Jesus is not our leader. Then the light for their feet went out, and they stumbled and fell off the narrow path into the dark world below. Ellen saw that the Adventist people who kept their eyes on Jesus reached the beautiful sea of pure glass just outside the holy city. She saw Jesus smile as he placed a golden crown upon the head of each person. She saw Jesus raise his shining arm and swing open the gates, each made of one great pearl. The gates swung on their glorious hinges and Jesus called, Come in, my children, every one of you. You've suffered for me and sacrificed everything for me. Come in and enjoy your heavenly home. Ellen walked in with the others and felt so happy to be home in heaven. Then the dream ended. Ellen woke up and found herself with her friends again in Mrs. Haynes's home. God has answered our prayers. She had told her four friends kneeling around her. She told them about what she'd seen. We are the Adventist people climbing the narrow path to heaven. A lovely angel told me the bright light at the beginning of the path is the good news of the soon coming of Jesus. He is leading us all the way to our heavenly home. We sure have been blessed today, Mrs. Tammy. All of the animals seem to be out and about, and here we are now at the sea edge. We're bound to see some interesting Arctic animals here. Oh, look over there. A puffin has just surfaced. Oh, isn't his beak pretty? Yes, it is. You know, Mrs. Tammy, of all the animals that catch fish, none of them do it quite as cleverly as a puffin with its fancy beak. What does he do that's so special? Well, one puffin can catch up to 12 fish in one single dive. But he doesn't eat them, he holds them in his beak. 12 fish? That is amazing. Yes, it's certainly a lot of fish for a little beak. But there's more. No one is really sure exactly how he does it. Because they haven't watched puffins under the water for long enough. But as he catches each fish, the puffin carefully lines them all up in a row, just like little soldiers with their heads at the top and their tails at the bottom. And he keeps them this way in his beak until he gets back to his nest to feed his puffin chick. That is amazing. We certainly do have an awesome God, Ranger Dan. Everything that he has made is just so different and so wonderful. Oh, yes, Mrs Tammy. There is certainly nothing like a puffin.
many fish can you catch at once? Lots I'd like to think. Well, a puffin would answer with a splash and a splash. He catch twelve fish in his beak. Twelve? All of the fish would be lined in a row. Heads together and tails just so. He does all the sun down under the sea. How he does it is a mystery. How many fish can you catch at once? Lots I'd like to think. Well, a puffin would answer with a splash and a splash. He catch twelve fish in his beak. Oh, well, there, there is nothing like a puffin. God made him the best that he could be. This bird is made just perfectly. And that's how God made me and you. Filled with potential through and through. How many fish can you catch at once? Lots I'd like to think. Well, a puffin would answer with a splash and a splash and catch twelve fish in his beak. Ranger Dan, over there on that piece of floating ice. It's a baby seal! Oh, wow! We're very blessed to see one of these little fellas, Mrs. Tammy. You see, seals spend most of their time under the ice and usually only poke their nose up through a breathe hole for a second or two and then dive quickly back down for some more swimming and fishing. I like seeing seals clapping their flippers together, Ranger Dan. It's like... They are giving the world their seal of approval. It sure does look that way. You know, Mrs. Tammy, when God had finished making Adam and Eve, he stood back, looked at them, and said, You are very good. And he gave them his seal of approval. He gave them and us this seal so that we would know that we are special to him. God gives you his seal of approval. Oh, oh, seal of approval. Oh, oh, seal of approval. Oh, 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 oh. He gives you his seal so you know for real that you are special to him. girls and boys, Auntie Nat here. It's so good that you have come back to join me in reading the Bible. Have you got your Bibles ready? I'm reading from the New King James Version, and today we're going to continue our story in Matthew, and we're starting in chapter 2, verse 13. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, Take the young child and his mother and flee to Egypt and stay there until I bring you word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I called my son." Now, boys and girls, King Herod was waiting anxiously for the wise men to return to Jerusalem from Bethlehem to tell Herod all about the boy king that they had found in Bethlehem. But remember we read last week in Matthew 2.12 that the wise men had been warned by God in a dream not to go back to Jerusalem, but to go home a different way. Let's see what Herod's reaction was uh, when he found out that he'd been tricked. 
So we're going to start reading again in verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry, and he sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and in all its districts from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. What a wicked thing he did. Every time he felt his throne was threatened, he would kill the people who would dare challenge his kinship. He really had issues because he felt threatened by a two-year-old child. Let's read on. Verse 17. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah, the prophet, saying, A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because there are no more. So you can imagine, boys and girls, the grief of all those poor mothers who had lost their baby boys to those cruel soldiers. Do you know, shortly after this wicked act, Herod actually died. Now let's read, continue reading, verse 19. Now when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the young child's life are dead. Now, boys and girls, this is the third time an angel has spoken to Joseph. Remember, the first time was to tell him to marry Mary. The second time was to escape to Egypt. And now the third time to go back to Israel. It must have been very comforting for Joseph and Mary to be given these dreams to guide and direct them. Let's continue in 21. Then he arose took the young child and his mother and came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea instead of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there, and being warned by God in a dream, he turned aside into the region of Galilee. Now Joseph was planning to go back to Bethlehem, but when Archelaus, one of Herod's sons, was reigning over Jerusalem, We are told that he was even more wicked than his father. And God again told Joseph in another dream to not settle here, but to go north to the region of Galilee. So let's continue reading verse 23. And he came and dwelt in a city of Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. So boys and girls, they settle in Nazareth, back to where Mary and Joseph originally set out from those few years before. All of this was orchestrated by God, as the prophecy tells us that Jesus was called a Nazarene. God guided Mary and Joseph every step of the way to keep his son safe. Do you know that God wants to guide your life as well? Surrender your heart to him and let him lead you. Boys and girls, it's Dr. John again, and we're going to finish the story of Parquet, the story of the little knifey, as he was called. Then one day, what do you think happened? He saw a bunch of boys together, and he heard them saying, Are you going? Yes. Are you? It'll be nice, won't it? Ten of us, and showing pictures in all the villages. Who's going? Where to? What pictures? 
and Parquet was in the middle of them, wanting to know what it was all about. And then it all leaked out. Thara was going to take 10 of the big boys with him when school was closed for vacation and was going to tour among the hill villages, showing pictures and preaching the gospel. Those selected to go and help were considered most highly favored. They all would like to go, but the mountains were so high and the trails so difficult that the smaller ones felt resigned all but parquet. He was small and could not go. Yes, that was true enough, but those pictures, why could not Tara go and show those pictures in his village? The suggestion was so clear to him that when the day came for starting our tour and he saw the boys with their bundles which held the medicine box and the projector with the pictures and the three cornets or trumpets, he summoned up courage, came over to me and he asked, timidly at first, Thara, when you come back, couldn't you come to my village and have a meeting there too? Well, Knifey, my boy, that's what I called him, your village is so small, uh, and, and we have been... But, Tara, there are other villages nearby, and I'll get them all to come, Tara. I will. Couldn't you? Uh, but, you see, I argued, your village is so far from the river, uh, and, and we would... But he was ready even for this argument, and again interrupted, but I'll meet you with a cart, Tara. I will. You want to... Won't you, Tara? So, turning to Peter, I said, do you think... We'll be too tired when we come back to give Parquet a night. Peter was ready for anything and sure that, even though we'd be tired, yet we would always do one more village. As I jumped into the canoe, I said, All right, Parquet, Wednesday of the third week, meet us at the riverbank. The boys were ready at the oars. Our canoe glided swiftly away upriver on tour, leaving a very delighted boy on the bank, clapping his hands as he repeated, Wednesday of the third week, Wednesday of the third week. We had a happy time on tour and blistered, aching feet were all forgotten. When two weeks later we looked back at the meetings we had been able to hold in the villages among the hills. Then Wednesday of the third week came and calling Peter, I said, well, Peter, are you ready? This is Wednesday of the third week. Peter was ready, all right. All the boys were ready. They would follow Tara to the ends of the earth to preach the gospel. Soon we were all in the canoe again, rowing and wondering whether Parquet would be there to meet us or not. He's there, all right. <laughs> came the yell from each throat as we rounded a bend in the river a little later and we could see some little chaps splashing around in the water. They saw us too and the splashing increased many times, telling of their delight at our arrival. The cart was there and before long all bundles were packed in. Then Parquet laughing all over inside and out and quite, Oh, Tara, you ride the elephant bareback, can you? Turning... I beheld a huge animal and asked, whatever are you going to do with that? Oh, he said, that's for you to ride upon. And walking up to it, he called out, Huang! The great beast appeared to know what was about to happen and obediently bent one leg to form a step. There you are, Thara. Use his ear like a rope and climb up. Well, it sounded easy enough. 
but it seemed to me that I was going through some gymnastic exercises for at least 10 minutes before I was seated up, high up bareback. I had never ridden an elephant before and felt highly honoured. But soon my delight was changed into agonies not unlike seasickness as the huge animal lurched from side to side. If you want to have a sensation like riding an elephant bareback, try to sit straddle-legged across the dining room table while someone is rocking it slowly from side to side and you will have a sensation, something like that I had riding the elephant bareback. Well, by sunset... We had our sheets strung up on a frame near the centre of the village and we were delighted to see so many people there. There was more than one village to account for. So I said, Knifey boy, where did all these people come from? Oh, he said, pointing from that village over there and that one over there and he pointed to villages two and three miles away. I was delighted with the lad's work. And after a fine meeting and worship in his house, we lay down on the bamboo floor and slept. But no, we didn't go to sleep yet. I was still twisting around trying to find some friendly cracks in, in which to lay my bones when a voice called, Tara, Tara, oh Tara. There was Parquet pleading, now what are we going to do? Why, what's the matter? Oh, a lot more people have come to see the pictures. Where did they come from? Ah... Uh, uh, from over there and over there. And while you were away in the mountains, I went and told them all that tonight we were going to have pictures. And now here they are. They have walked many miles. And, and now what are we going to do? That was very easily answered. We were lightning experts on the projector and in seven minutes we had the sheet for the screen set up and the pictures started for the second time that night. When at last we did finish for the night, I prayed, Thank you, O God, for giving us little parquet. Fill our school, O Lord, with little parquets. Last year, his big brother wouldn't let him come to school. He said, No, this year, parquet must stop at home and help us plant rice. And the little fellow went off back to his heathen village, waving his hand and saying, Never mind, Tara, I'll be there. I'll be true. We didn't see him very much that year. He came down occasionally, but sometimes I was away, sometimes busy. And besides an occasional handshake, we knew little of him. However, three days before the end of the year 1925. Boys and girls, do you know that is a long, long time ago? It's 90 years. He hunted me up in my office and said, Oh, Tara, have you got a new morning watch calendar for 1926? I said, oh, I'm sorry, Parquet, but they haven't come yet. They should be here soon. Then he said, Tara, what will I do then? For truly, Tara, I haven't missed one day reading my Bible this whole year. One of those nasty lumps came into my throat as I looked at his earnest face and I thought, only a heathen lad in a heathen village all by himself and he hasn't missed reading the Bible once. And I felt so ashamed. Here I was, a missionary, a minister of the gospel. I hadn't been as faithful as Parquet. Say, boys and girls, doesn't it make you feel a little bit ashamed as I felt too? And I said to myself, Father Knife shall have a morning watch. 
even if I have to go all the way to Rangoon to get it. But I remembered upstairs some other missionaries had gathered to attend our camp meetings in the jungle. Perhaps they might have one. So away I went to see what could be done. Sure enough, Brother Wilson, our bookman, had a new morning watch for 1926. So I said, Brother Wilson, sell me your new morning watch for a dollar or I'll run off with it because Father Knife is going to have a morning watch for next year at all costs. But when he heard it was for Parquet, he said, I wouldn't sell it to you for $10. I will give it to him myself. The last I saw of Parquet that day, he was tucking it right in under his shirt next to his heart. As he went off, smiling all over and calling back, I'm so glad, Thara, now I can be true for another year. And I know he will. Special thanks go to Pacific Press for giving 3ABN Australia Radio permission to read on air a selection from Jungle Stories, written by Eric B. Hare, and Ellen, the Girl with Two Angels, written by Mabel R. Miller. Also, thanks goes to Stanborough Press for giving 3ABN Australia Radio permission to read a selection of stories from the set of books called Uncle Arthur's Best Bedtime Stories. And thanks to Remnant Publications for permission to read the Remnant Young Scholar Study Bible on air. We would also like to thank Daniel and Tammy Cinzio for allowing us to play their CD, Frozen Chosen, on air. For any other information about the Children's Story Hour, you can contact us at radio at 3abnaustralia.org.au. Table before.
Gavin Chitalia and the children sang The Lord is My Shepherd and Auntie Cecily sang Anywhere with Jesus. Well, boys and girls, we have come to the end of the Children's Story Hour. On behalf of Auntie Sue, I would like to say goodbye, God bless you, and we'll see you again next week for another episode of the Children's Story Hour. Bye.